And during those various attempts, they got caught. They would have to spend nights in jail. One particular journey, my my mom and my dad got separated from each other because they had to take different fishing boats. You're listening to the podcast Stories of the Vietnamese Boat People. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and welcome back. A while back, Peter Jin reached out to me, wanting to share his parents' story. He said he grew up hearing them as bedtime stories from his mom, and only recently from his dad. Now they are both retired, and Peter wanted them to share their story with our organization. He's very quiet. Um, he would just keep his head down and, and go to his job and work hard and come back. He's a pretty simple man with with simple his tastes. He likes to garden, fix up things around the house all the time. And then when he has a meal, he always likes to have a nice Budweiser or Heineken beer. Loyal, resilient, hardworking, like top three qualities that describe my mom as. Um, she's incredibly loyal to her family. Um, she'll do anything for us. Um, and she will do whatever it takes to make sure that her children have a better life than she did. I met Peter's parents in person, and I got to spend time listening to their experiences during the war and after. What I remember most about their story is how his father was imprisoned in re-education camp for almost four years, and his mom spent years searching for her husband and coordinated a plan to help him escape camp and then to flee Vietnam. Much of what they shared with me was in Vietnamese, and I'm humbled to share a small portion of their fascinating story with you today. My parents came in around 1979, 1980, um, and they have like, this whole saga of how they got here that I, I grew up listening to their stories. At, at night, pretty much, when we would, we would go to bed. Me and my brother always slept in my mom's bed when we were little kids, and she would always tell us stories, and particularly the ones about her like time getting here. It was not a straightforward journey at all. There was a lot of setbacks. My parents were separated. My dad had to spend was spending years in a labor camp in the jungle, and my mom and either her brother or my dad's brother like fashioned together a fake ID, and they went into the jungle, um, and there were no fences around the labor camp because it was in the middle of the jungle. And they somehow coordinated with my dad, break him out of the labor camp, made it past various police checkpoints along the way successfully with um, the fake ID they made and the, the clothes that they gave my dad. But a lot of what stood out to me about their stories was how their Catholic faith stood out a lot. They described a lot of moments where they were encountering the police. My mom said she was almost raped by um, a Thai like Navy patrol that like came across their uh, their um, boat while she was heading out, and she described so many times how she just prayed to Jesus and to God to save her, and God came through in those moments. And I think that forms a huge bedrock of who they are and um, and their faith today. My mom was like one of twelve. Like my grandparents had my mom as being the second oldest sibling. She was responsible for taking care of all of the other siblings and cooking for the family and not the oldest sibling. 
but she'd always comment about how harsh her parents could be to her. Despite the fact that they were harsh to her, they, she loved them so much um, and respected them a ton. Peter's mom, Thin Jin, was born in 1955 in Saigon. She is the second eldest of 12 children from a wealthy and highly respected family. Her father owned a successful business, and when he passed away from a car accident shortly after she married, her mother had to take over the family business and then quickly took on the role to care for her younger siblings. I born in Saigon, and then later my family moved to Bien Hoa. I married uh, my husband. And how old were you when you got married? Very young. <laughs> 18? 16? 16 to 17. Peter's father, Nhung Jin, was born in 1949 in northern Vietnam and later migrated with his family to the south in 1954. When he was five years old, his own father was killed in the military by the Communist Party. He was entered into a junior military academy school at the age of 12, run by the South Vietnamese government, which served children whose parents died during military service. At age 18, he graduated as a warrant officer, and his title was platoon leader. His duty was to protect a village about 30 miles southeast of Saigon against the Viet Cong. He is the youngest of four boys and was the last one in his family to join the military. And uh, after I graduated, you know, uh, infantry officer school, I served as uh, in the 655 company. So one day I came to the uh, province, I saw, you know, the uh, look like a bulletin. A bulletin? Yeah, the bulletin, they recruit pilots. He saw a flyer recruiting for pilots for South Vietnam Air Force to be trained by the American government. So he enlisted, and after a series of examinations, he was accepted and began English language training. They sent me to the English school. So, you know, every day we study about, I think, about three, four hours for the English. So after six months, I passed the test. After passing the English exams, he was sent to the United States to train at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Unlucky for me because the government, the uh, American government, they cut the aid to the Vietnam. By that time, the United States had cut aid to South Vietnam. So only after weeks of training, he and 200 others were sent back to Vietnam before their training was completed. While many dropped out after that, he decided to continue to try to be a pilot. He then studied for six months at a flight school in South Vietnam and was trained to pilot reconnaissance planes used to surveillance areas, gather intelligence, and target enemies. He was stationed in Division I of the South Vietnam Air Force in Da Nang. Our you know, mission is uh, to find the, ta the target and contact with the army on the ground and call the fighter to drop bomb on the target. In March 1975, while stationed in Da Nang, he spotted the enemy approaching. So by the March 1975, you know, very heavy fighting over there. And at that time, I on a, I on the plane, you know, I saw you know the um, truck, whatever the convoy you know, of the Viet Cong, 
run on the ground, but we call them, we report them what we saw that, but you know, they don't say nothing. They don't, you know, let us, you know, call the fighter to destroy them. That time we don't have, look like we don't have the order to destroy them. Even though he had reported this, he was not given orders to take any actions. Until on about 20, the day 28, 29 of March, 1975, that night, they fired artillery to the, the airport, the Da Nang Air Force Base. After that, they stopped, and then about 1, one o'clock in the a.m., they start fire one more time. The firing went on for about 30 minutes and then stopped. At around 1 a.m., it started again. At that time, he and his pilots were no longer in the air. About around 4 or 5 o'clock, we, uh, we contact with my commander. Nobody answered. They left already. By 5 a.m. in the morning, his unit of about 10 pilots had lost contact completely with their commanding officers. They realized then that they had been abandoned. They needed to find a way out and ran to the base and flew aircrafts out of Dainang to the Nyajang Air Force Base. Once in Nyajang, they received communications to fly to Saigon. So we take off again, go back to the Saigon. And then they sent us to the Binhua Air Force Base. Did you have a feeling that the war, we were going to lose the war? When after I left the Da Nang, right, I heard, uh, when I get into the Saigon, I heard over there, after about 7 p.m., the communists, they took over the Da Nang already. So that time, we, uh, I heard like that. He returned home to Binhua, right outside of Saigon, to where his family and wife were. Exactly, the, 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 on the morning of the airport, early I report, I go, I, I left the apartment to go to the Tansenyat FFB to report to my unit. But when I get out of the, uh, the apartment, I saw, you know, the Viet Cong um, on the way, go to the Saigon already. Mm-hmm. So that time, you know, I take off my uniform, I throw my uh, pistol, P38, throw away. I still remember my pistol. I threw in the in the bushes. Now we lose, so that feel very feel very bad, you know. So. And that morning, he almost go to uh, uh, Saigon uh, Airport. That time they couldn't uh, tension yet. Later, just heard about. Uh, the other side, not Vietnam, they already came. And they back and forth, so we know we lost the country. Me and him, just so scary. When uh, I come out on the street, I saw the Viet Cong from north side. I just so scary, and I saw body all over, uh, you know, uh, die, and some over their legs, some over their head. We, we want to escape, so um, we try to go to Vung Tau. They tried to escape through Vong Tau City, located at the tip of South Vietnam. But on route, they saw that there were too many checkpoints, so decided to return back home. When they got home, they went through all his things and started burning any evidence that he was part of the South Vietnam military. 
They burned his uniforms, his photos, and military ID. They only kept one photo of the two of them, where he was wearing his uniform, just in case they needed it one day. The government, uh, local government, they said, you know, every, any officer from you know, South Vietnam have to report to them and go to re-education in a month, something like that. So when I hear that, uh, heard that, that order, I report to uh, them. A few months after the fall of Saigon, the communist government gave notice that any military officer from the former South must report in and attend re-education camp. They were told to bring a few belongings with them, enough for just a few days. There were several thousand people at that camp. For three days, I went up there to visit my husband. Then one day, I arrived late and found that the soldiers had been taken, everyone, to a new location without any of us knowing. For six months, I had no idea where he was. All I did was cry. Wherever I heard there was a re-education camp, I went looking. My husband's relatives were housing a soldier at the time, and one day that soldier told me that he thinks he knows where my husband may be. He said he could try to help. Her husband had been moved to several different locations, eventually ending up in a remote area in the jungle near the Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnamese border. At this new camp, they had to learn how to survive using only the resources they had in the jungle, cutting down trees for shelter, growing and hunting their own food. There was not enough food to eat, and many became very ill. My cousin and I often would go to the camp disguised as banana vendors. We were actually looking for our husbands. We would bring bananas and spread them out. The men were allowed to bathe in water springs, a group of them at a time, with two or three armed guards with them. They would sneak folded letters to give to us, and we would hide them in our clothes and go back home to help give them to their families. We kept going on a regular basis. It took another six months before I spotted him. And even then, we didn't know when our husbands could return home again. During this time, her husband became weaker and weaker and got injured during manual labor. When he recovered, he was assigned to be the gardener and a cook. Almost two years had gone by before families were allowed to start visiting. He was very thin, gaunt, and sickly. There were soldiers with guns standing around us, guarding while we met, so we did not get to talk very much. By 1978, the government had stripped people from their wealth and was persecuting and confiscating businesses. Her mother decided it was best to find a way out of the country and sold off their family assets for gold. 
By that time, her husband had already been in re-education camp for almost four years. I told him that I needed to flee with my family, that I couldn't wait for him to get released to any longer, and that I would leave behind some gold for him with his family members. Then he told me, then let's plan an escape. But I was too scared. I was afraid they would catch us and kill us. The prison was a long drive from Saigon, and along the way, there are multiple checkpoints. The labor camp was near a road where maybe only a few cars passed a day. The plan was to create a fake ID from her older sister's husband, meet at a time and place behind the kitchen area, which mostly was unguarded with a handful of cooks. They would pick him up in a car and he would change into civilian clothes. They would then drive to Saigon, which was a full day's drive, and show his fake ID at the checkpoints. Once in Saigon, they would stay with different people, no more than one night hiding at each point. It took them a few months to plan this. At the start of it, I was too afraid to ask my family for help. I was wandering all over town looking for a car or a truck that would be a good getaway vehicle. Then one day, I saw a truck and I knocked on the owner's house and said his truck would be perfect to help me transport my husband from prison. My family owned a lumber yard, and we often transported broken cars. So I said we could say that the truck is moving some parts to Saigon for repair. I would buy him a fake ID to get through the checkpoints and pay any amount. I offered him 50,000 Vietnamese dong if he could drive me. 50,000 was a lot of money at the time. He accepted the money, but he still needed permission to take his truck outside of the region. When he applied for papers with the city authorities, he was denied. They said that the path he wanted to take was heavily bombed and too dangerous to drive through. He returned the money and said he couldn't help. I had a relative who was like a brother-in-law. He was very smart and trustworthy, the owner of a sawmill. I asked him to be the driver. He agreed to help, but initially offered to hire a different driver for me. I said, no, no, I couldn't trust just anyone. After that, I also needed to find places in Saigon to hide my husband. I had already purchased multiple gallons of gasoline for the long journey ahead of us. I had gotten fake papers for my husband using my brother-in-law's documents. When I asked him for help, I urged him not to say anything to my older sister, his wife. And then two days before the escape, the sawmill owner, my driver, was arrested for something else and sentenced to 10 years.
At that point, all the pieces were in place and all she needed was to now find a new driver. She went to her husband's brother, but he refused, stating that he had a wife and kids to worry about. I told him I would handle everything and I won't let anything bad happen. Her brother-in-law eventually agreed. There was a family near the camp who owned a farm and would sell produce to the camp soldiers and commuters in the back roads. She decided to befriend the wife. Every time I visited, I would bring something for her two kids. On that day, the woman asked the other prisoners to tell my husband to meet her outside. I was already hiding in her house, waiting for him. I couldn't sleep at all that night. I felt like a fish on a chopping board. We were able to sneak him into the getaway car with multiple security checkpoints along the way. Somehow, we were never stopped. We drove for eight hours straight. When they got to Saigon, they hid him at different homes, but only for one night before moving to another. First at his brother's house, then at his uncle's house, then at her brother's house, and so on. And then they spent a couple months um, with a Catholic diocese in Vietnam. Um, They're both Catholic, and the Catholic diocese there sheltered them while they made various attempts to make it out um, to a boat. During that stay, they shared with a visiting priest about the escape, and he would introduce them to another priest in a parish along the seashore. That priest would help them. On the day of the escape, she took her younger sister with her. And we follow the guy, and that guy take us to the Zhejia city. On the way to the Zhejia city, we stop at the Longxun city. Uh, ran the hotel over there that night. That hotel, there are only one room left. So my wife and my um, my sister-in-law stay in that hotel. And I go myself to night hotel, rent another room over there. So during that night, about one or two o'clock in the morning, something like that, I heard a lot of noises and the people talking and uh, Jumping something like that on the my wife's hotel. At that time, soldiers would do random checks on hotel guests to make sure that people had authorized papers to travel. During that time, they checked my wife's room and they found out about 18 ounces of gold they confiscated. And then the picture that year, I wear a uniform next to my wife. But um, the checker, they say they add, you know, where this guy on the picture. My wife keep on uh, deny, don't know where he, where he is now. Mm-hmm. They threatened her, at, but took that picture and uh, 18 ounces of gold. 18 ounces of gold, yeah. Yeah. That night, the soldiers took all their gold and the only photo that they had saved. Luckily, that was it. The next day, they proceeded to the escape route and onto a small boat, but the waves were too rough to make it out to sea. 
They were stranded all night and eventually pulled in because of low tide. In the morning, the police patrol boat caught them and towed the boat in. They were arrested along with 12 other people. Everyone was in prison for two to three days. And during those various attempts, they got caught. They would have to spend nights in jail. Months later, they would make another attempt. This time, she took three younger siblings with her. My mom and my dad got separated from each other because they had to take different different fishing boats. Um, and my mom made it to the larger boat, my dad didn't. And so he had to stay back. Um, and she ultimately made it to um, Malaysia. Uh, my dad had to come back, spend another round in jail. Peter's dad was imprisoned for six months before being released. During that time, he did not know whether his wife had made it out of the country. In 1979, he made another attempt, a successful one that led him to the refugee camps in Malaysia. There he was assigned to be the chief of security given his military background. Through that role, he was able to communicate with higher delegations at all the camps to search for his wife. And one day, he received news that she had made it to America. In 1980, Peter's parents were reunited. She picked him up at the airport in New York City. Collectively, the whole struggle about how to get here and then honestly, how hard they had to work when they got here. That stands out to me a lot. It helps me keep in perspective and it helps me appreciate where I am today in life and whatever struggles I have are not really, don't really compare to what my parents went through and what they did in order to get us here. The choice of which siblings to go um, for, for my mom's family, you know, she was the second oldest sibling out of 12 and um, and there was, I guess, only three of them ultimately came with my mom. And so one thing I never really asked was how was that decision made between my mom and my grandma, like which siblings were going to, to make this journey on behalf, I guess, of the entire family from my grandma's perspective. How it's like kind of crazy, like which children do I let go of, you know? I hope to one day experience kind of the unconditional love that my mom has for myself and my siblings. She was working almost, I don't know, 12 plus hour days in menial jobs, making minimum wage, but saving up as much as she could to, to start a family and support not only my dad, but the three siblings that she came with. This unconditional love is like what drives her today. And I guess is the ultimate source of, of her work ethic and, and how hard she works. And my dad, I kind of want to see it. So he has been such a quiet man in my life. And I don't know too much actually about his story, his family. I'd actually would appreciate having to go, going on a trip to Vietnam with him and, and him, I guess, showing me his, where he grew up, where he went to school, his family, kind of all these landmarks in his life and his story. Thank you to the Jin family for letting us share a glimpse of their story. For more details on this episode, visit our Instagram or Facebook page at Vietnamese Boat People and look for details under episode 31. If you would like to learn more about your family's story, we have created a conversation kit to help you start the dialogue. Visit our website to download the kit at vietnameseboatpeople.org forward slash share. 
And a shout out to our producers, Sao Ling Wing and Darlena Jim, for editing support on this episode. I'm Tracy Nguyen Meng, and thank you for helping us preserve history. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And please take a moment to rate us and provide us feedback. And if you have a story to share, contact us at stories at vietnameseboatpeople.org.